welcome back, everybody. We 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 all had a crazy week with Thanksgiving, and that's why we were not on last week. So apologies, but life happens. Um, and either way, I hope everyone had a long, a good long weekend here if you're in the U.S. Um, and we're officially back. But being back, we we didn't have a whole lot of time to have anything kind of major percolating. But one thing I can say that I can work, talk in length is the world of generative art. Um, and so for those of you who aren't aware or haven't heard of generative art, generative art is using um, models to create images from either text-to-speech or text-to-images and then or using images to create um, uh, raw images based on those image inputs. If you have paid attention to the space, you've seen models. The first one that's still not public is called Dolly 2, um, and that is made by OpenAI. They originally started doing their research around um, text uh, AI models. So basically, you could give them prompts on a, like, either train your writing style to make a blog post or tweets or something like that. And then they transitioned that model to do image based stuff as well. And then more recently, probably in June or July, they released a separate company, released a model called Midjourney, which is what I've been using. And Joe, you recently got, I think, like two months ago on that one. Yeah. And I've been using it since it basically kind of went public for the most part. And now they're on their V4 model. I started using it as their V3 model kind of became the standard. So probably like six months now. And as with any new technology, as the description of this podcast says, there's a lot of hopes, dreams, and worries <laughs> with anything new. And I have a lot of thoughts on both ends of the spectrum uh, on this. And I don't know if you want to say any high-level thoughts before I kind of give an overview on how these models actually create images, because I think it's really cool and it's not really talked about too much because people think um, it's different or it's simpler than it actually is. Well, let me just preface it with the kind of questions that these artificial intelligence create, and then we can go into how they operate. We don't have to answer these questions yet, but just allow people to kind of understand why you might think about it, these, these machines at all. Yeah. One of the controversies that has emerged from this has been one voiced by the artists. And that's because they almost feel as if they're being pushed out of the market by this machine. Now, if you've seen any of the pictures that especially version four can create, then you'd understand their concern <laughs> because a lot of them are gorgeous. Oh yeah. They're, they are, they can be beautiful uh, pictures and seemingly can produce anything that comes to your mind. Now, an immediate question that emerges from that is, is what an AI creates art? And for that, you have to know what is art. <laughs> but even if you put that aside, there are scarier questions, one that mid-journey avoids, but that some other, uh, some other AI don't. So I think stable diffusion is one. Yeah. Which is, which revolves around violence in pornography. So 
all of those. So there are, there are questions about art and the nature of art, whether or not it can push out the artist, uh, or transcend the artist that it isn't dependent on it. We'll get on, on dependent on the artists. We'll get to that in just a moment when you start explaining how these things work. Um, but also ethical questions about similar to what ethical questions you might have about deep fakes where you could create pornography of a celebrity, right? Who never agreed to something like this, but just by using a machine and is, is that okay? Yep. Given that it isn't actually a person who's doing the act in some sense. Yeah. Okay. It's so also, please now explain of, how yeah. these, these operate. <laughs> I mean, this gets into a lot of territory. Like even there's another example we can talk to about moderation in social networks because mid journey itself, because it's become so popular, there's like a million users. Now the platform itself is primarily used through discord. So it's not like it's a website in it's not like an interface, like you use Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram, right? But it still means you have a whole bunch of people interacting that requires moderation. Even if you're not posting things that are like violent, but like if it's like Joe, you said, is creating images that are either violent or use the likeness of someone in a way that they might not like, and you're not asking permission to use their likeness, um, we get into a whole bunch of murky territory. Right? And I think that's why I get super excited about this because it, it kind of allows us to approach these questions in a, in like a playground type of setting. It's like more fun and you're not like trying to, to, to be like, um, I guess a pseudo intellectual with some of these things where you can go onto like Twitter and pretend to be smart or whatever. And then you just put a paragraph and nobody cares or whatever. <laughs> like you oh, could actually. You when you say like a pseudo intellectual, it'd be like a pseudo artist. And then you're going in there and pretending like you created something magnificent and unique. Yeah. Uh, for a very low stakes in that regard. And that's what makes yeah. it so fun. Yeah. Um, and so we'll get into that, but I want to start with like the technical side a little bit because I think it makes it, um, kind of clears some of the air about like how this idea works with generating the images themselves. Because I think a lot of people think the, the model itself is using the internet as, and it's like basically trained on a whole bunch of images. Like it's going through different libraries and then pulling in those images. So if you put in a person's name, I'm going to say like Leonardo da Vinci, right? Like if you say you do a painting in the style of Leonardo da Vinci, but like Darth Vader, that is an example of something I've done. And you make it draw something as if Leonardo put it in one of his notebooks. Are you like, is it actually stealing from something da Vinci already did and then putting it in there? Not necessarily. So the way these models work, and it's actually kind of interesting you brought up stable diffusion because stable diffusion is closer to the name on how the underlying mathematics of the neural networks work, which is called diffusion models. And so at the base level, whenever you put in any prompt, basically the entire image itself in Midjourney does a really cool job of this where it'll show you a preview of your image as, it, as it's generating, where it starts out as just kind of like a black blob with maybe some squares or kind of rough images or like impressions of what an image looks like based on what you put in. And then it kind of refines it until it's done. And so basically it's taking a noise pattern and trying to make sense of that noise based around what text you put into the prompt. Or if you put an image of say yourself, it flattens your input image to a noise pattern and then tries to regenerate an image around the already existing noise brand. That's why it gets really close to say an image of yourself or another thing you put into it. Like Joe, you were doing actual celebrities and trying to fuse them together. So basically what it's trying to do is it combines all those images together, 
creates a noise profile that then tries to recombine the, that noise profile together to get something that's like not. And this is why you said the deep fakes kind of come in is, is the, the coders themselves are the ones tuning the algorithm to see how close or how much it gets to like ultra hyper real to get to that deep fakey area. And so let me see if I, let me stop there for a second. Let me see if I understand what you mean by noise pattern. Mm -hmm. So noise pattern in some senses, I put in 10 different prompts. I hear 10 words that I'm trying to get used to elicit a certain image from this AI. The noise pattern is something like all the images that are associated with those prompts combined into one. Mm -hmm. And then over some number of iterations, it pulls the signal from that noise. Yeah. It refines and refines and refines until it looks something more like an acceptable image as opposed to just an amalgam of all the applicable images based on your yeah. prompt. Correct. And so that's why the, these models really are dependent on the data set that goes into them and why stable diffusion and mid-journey are starting to work is that they're leveraging the largest ever data set to generate these images. And the other part of this mm -hmm. is that it's being run off of uh, GPUs, graphical processing units. So if you pay attention to anything with computer hardware, graphics cards like the uh, NVIDIA 4090, 3080, or even a couple generations back. Imagine giant server farms of that as what is running to generate all these images. But a lot of people don't realize is that because the, these GPUs aren't, it's not like a serialized thing where, do you remember playing Minecraft, Joe? I'm going to pull in a gaming reference here so people can understand this, but it's an example that I think is important. Sure. So yeah. Minecraft is a generative world, right? So every time you play a new game of Minecraft, the map itself is is randomized right like not, not there won't be a cave ever in, ever in the same spot every time you play but when you create a new world there's a thing called a seed and that seed basically locks your world so every time you create a new map you can create the same map if you know that seed the the image generation with at least mid-journey works in the same principle you can lock an image generation if you know the seed that is was used to create that image but if you try to rerun the same prompt over and over and over again without locking the seed, you will n almost never get an exact copy. It, it's just not possible with how the graphic processing units work because there's a sense of randomness that's baked into how it's generated. So, mm -hmm. like, so there's really like it's it's not like it's current kind of copying, but it's using it's like referencing images to understand a style. And like before we were recording, I kind of touched on this where. It, the neural networks themselves are trained not to really know a thing, but it's like a, a training by association. Once it knows a whole, but it's like a neural map of like just different nodes floating in its like consciousness. I'm using that really liberally here. Um, but like to, to know what a watercolor is, like it doesn't really know what a watercolor is, but has a whole bunch of examples that are classified okay. in watercolor. Let, let, me, let me see if I can dumb this down and to a yeah, level I that I can understand. <laughs> um, Okay, so you have a bunch of prompts. Those prompts are associated with images that are tagged with that prompt, whatever it happened to, mm -hmm. happens to be. It amalgamates them into your noise pattern, and it's just chaotic grouping of all of these different images. Yep. It slowly refines it. As it refines it, it creates a signal pulled from that noise. The image that it generates creates a seed, just like you might have for a seeded the seed from a map in Minecraft, 
It is a unique image in organized such in such a way uh, as to produce whatever the final output is. Right. So you could have a you, maybe you have a hundred pictures uh, that you pulled from. They create your the hundred pictures make your noise pattern, but you could organize, make one more important than the other, take the style from one or the other, in so many different possible ways that the idea that you would randomly generate this thing and get the same exact image twice is staggeringly improbable. Yeah, the seed locks it in, and I know for the older version of, I think it's maybe even two versions ago. In Mid Journey, you could actually in the prompt input a seed, and so you would use this noise derived from the signal, or excuse me, the signal derived from the noise, to act itself as a prompt to build yep. off of, to amalgamate into your new noise pattern to pull a new signal from. And that's how basically, like, so if you're if anybody was familiar with Mid Journey, at least there's a way to basically make variants of it previously generated image. So the image itself is generated in a quadrant of four. So there's a quadrant one, two, three, four, and you can basically either choose to upscale them or create variants. And the variant thing is basically that it takes your original prompt and then feeds in the generated variant as it's the new parent, basically to like, just build, it's like a branching web. If you can imagine like a, almost like a family tree, but instead of having two parents, you just have one and it splits to four children every time huh. and so like it kind of gets like into nested variables and complicated really quick and i don't even know what the underlying code of this stuff looks like because it's just kind of mind-bendy as as we're trying to yeah, yeah. <laughs> unpack it here right now but basically I, what my point being is that the the program itself isn't really generating it's not like stealing directly as some people think it is but it's but it also requires the input of a massive amount of information and styles to be able to t take someone like anyone you could imagine that's popular even today or past, right? Like pulling Da Vinci, Mozart, or not Mozart, that's music, um, Picasso, um, any number of artists, living or not, to pull their styles together and then give you something coherent that is emblematic of what they would do, right? Like it's not. It's not like it's hitting it perfectly, but it's close enough, right? Um, or at least you could pass it off and say, this is someone's original thing. If you chose to be that kind of person. Okay. So there's something there that's interesting. One is that it, we actually touched on why it is that they're called neural networks, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> these networks were originally designed to be models that behave like a brain. Yeah. In some sense, these people were trying to build a, a brain. Um, but one of the ways that the brain works is actually apophatically, which is actually a theological term for defining oh, wow. the nature of God. <laughs> so the idea there is being that it's negatively, that, that you, you can come to a conclusion about what God is by saying what God isn't. Oh yeah. Okay. Or at least you can boil it down. You can say God is not evil, right? And so maybe you get to something like God is good in contrast, right? That's actually kind of the way that the brain works. The brain actually defines things in contrast with each other, right? So I approach a painting. I see, in a, or maybe I see a bunch of paintings. And I'm like, oh, these are really interesting. 
on that, it's like, wow, these kind of, there's some kind of texture or stylus that's common across these collection of 10 paintings. And then some, I asked somebody, what does that mean? What, what is this? Is there a name for this style? And they go, oh, these are oil paintings. I go, oh, okay. And oil is the, the material. It's the type of paint that they use. And, oh, okay, cool. And so now all these paintings belong to a category, right? And I can walk around knowing an oil painting. I can kind of think of an oil painting in and of itself in, as an abstract concept. But then I come across a new painting that I've never seen before. And this painting, I look at it, and the more that I look at it, the more that it doesn't fit my concept of oil painting. Like, <laughs> you know, it's very weird. It's like, it's a painting. Like, I know I can go even more abstract from oil painting and just go painting, but it isn't quite an oil painting. So what the hell is this? And then maybe I see a few more and a few more, a few more, and I ask them questions. I learn what the material is made out of. And they say, oh, this is watercolor. Ah. Oh. Okay, so these things that are divergent from the other thing is a watercolor. But notice that what's going on there as I'm coming to understand what these two different types of paintings are is that they're actually being contrasted with each other. And that's kind of what your brain does is it actually it needs the contrast. Your visual Defining system does this with lateral intermission and a whole bunch of other things. So it's like, yeah, so I guess the neural networks are doing the same thing, is that they yeah. actually be presented with a whole bunch of labeled but different paintings to derive their, under their understanding right, yeah. of, of these concepts. Yeah, It's understanding in quotes, because like when you put in a prompt to the computer or to the program <laughs> and say, generate this image, you know, in the style of, you know, a watercolor painting in the style of Picasso or whatever, it doesn't have like that conscious awareness of like it's going through its portfolio of, of watercolor paintings to to understand it and pick out a thing. It's it's just kind of going through this immersive uh, like just a cloud of ideas, and it's just kind of picking and choosing the references, kind of at random that seem to most fit what you thinks you want, right? So like that's kind of what makes this thing whole, so so magical in some sense because. It gets so close and it does so, at such a high fidelity and, and sharpness, especially with V4. This, And I'm going to use uh, Midjourney as my main reference here because that's the one I use the most or have used the most. Um, and there's some stuff that's unique to Midjourney that like they're not trying to be like hyper-technical like Stable Diffusion is. If people are familiar with Stable Diffusion, it takes a lot more literal in how it interprets prompts. So there's a lot of like craftsmanship in like how user-friendly you want these systems to be <laughs> and like a lot of this is so up in the air that it's like we discuss constantly um like there's a whole section if you go on the mid-journey discord page and join it there's an entire section of prompt craft because they're finding that people need to know a ton of words or like tons of different ideas about art or photography or staging of images and like what's in foreground what's in background what are different image types or rendering systems like like it's almost like you need to know a ton about keywords but you, it's also you could just throw the keywords at it but that doesn't mean you know exactly what those keywords are going to do in the output images cuz like i've seen you've probably seen this joe but some people just put like a, a giant paragraph of text that's like <laughs> for like i don't even know how many characters it would be but it looks like a paragraph of text and if you just read it it kind of turns into gibberish of just like 
buzzwords after uh, like the first 10 inputs. And as someone who hates this, it's, I'm like, you're not making anything interesting after those first 10 words. It's just ignoring. Yeah. It becomes a certain, (laughs) just extra noise to ask to play around. But what's really, okay. So these networks can work in a handful of different ways. One of the ways that they can do it is uh, they can create a target so that the network has in some sense exactly what it's aiming at. And then you just keep throwing inputs at it until it learns how to decrease the difference between your, the target you provided it and its output, right? So there's some calculus involved there because you do derivatives and all this stuff, which is why these things are complicated to understand. <laughs> and even for more reasons than that. And that is significant beyond me. But um, you can give them a target and then they could slowly increase the fidelity between their outputs and the, the target that you established. But that's not exactly how human beings learn. They don't really have a target exactly, though you, there are ways of arguing for that. It's more like they bootstrap off of pleasure and pain. And so one of the ways that you can teach somebody is just by giving them pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And they'll go with the pleasant ones as often as possible, and they'll try to maximize that and minimize the unpleasant ones. So this touches on, this emerges in ethics in the form of uh, consequentialism, which believes that you should maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Um, But there are also higher pleasures, things like art and so on, and lower pleasures, things that are hedonistic, and then there's all the pain, right? Yep. Um, But you can get at, you can actually abstract out of pleasure something you can hire things so you can have um in fact to some degree pleasure in itself becomes a bit of a abstract in that there's tasty food and there's something that feels nice tact you know tact tactically tact tactilely tactile yeah i'd be tactile um or smells nice or whatever. And you might say that the commonality of all these, these things is pleasure, right? But you can keep doing that, keep doing that. And then until you get to some very higher order abstract value that becomes a target, and then you can organize your world around that. And you're now decreasing the error between your outputs and the desired target that is a value. But that only comes in some sense after you learn the most basic concrete level of pleasure and pain from which you can abstract values. Where these networks are at now, like with Midjourney, where recently they asked people to go and like, as, they incentivize people to go and like the, as many pictures that, were, that they enjoyed yeah. as possible. So what are they asking people to do or what are they incentivizing people to do? Because they give you, I think, um, the, the ability to generate more images of your own if you rate a certain number of images. Yeah. Um, is you're behaving as pleasure for the system, right? You are giving it the positive feedback, that positive reinforcement for what images are good and what images are bad. Yeah. And then, of course, later in time, it will continue to increase um, some very, uh, it, its specificity. And to add on to that, there's two different things about this that's really cool. First of all, 
if you first started using this program, um, like around V2, V3, the faces were actually really bad or like they weren't terrible, but they weren't great. Like you would basically get like a weird asymm asymmetries of the face where like one eye would kind of be off, like just a little bit or like it would form one of them or not form the other very well. Um, and basically what happened is because so many people were trying to make good faces and by self-selecting for the faces that were good, the model got really, really good at creating faces in V3 because of just the volume of faces that were being generated. And so yeah. what they're doing is they're basically, your reacting is kind of like almost like an evolutionary, like this is like evolutionary bi biology all over again, where, where you're having a whole bunch of iteration happening and we're basically forcing the algorithm to evolve organically by us as like natural, uh, what is it? Natural selection. There we go. That's the word I was thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and this is what's like, pretty cool. You're so right to say natural selection. What's cool about this is that what nature does for us, we do for the AI, right? Nature with its structure inflicts pain or pleasure upon us. And that allows us to grow and evolve and slowly increase our survivability, our functionality, our fitness to it. But it is having that same uh, reward and punishment inflicted on it by us. And we're nature in this regard. We're nature um, uh, to, to which these With AI the, select get. the selective forces. Because there's been times too, like when they've updated the model from V3 to like a, there's like an in-between stage. It's called um, up, like it's a beta version that's like somewhere in between V3 and V4. Um, that data set had a certain subsection of porn. I think it was like 10% of the data set was corrupted. And so there was a whole bunch of images that were being bypassed by the, their, the not safe work filters they had in. And so they were basically trying to do like a deep pruning in the back end of the data set to kind of delete those porn images. Cause initially like the, the system was okay with like, when you don't have enough specificity within the images, like the sharpness and like how good the overall images, it's okay to have like fuzziness in your data set of images you don't like. But as the images get better and better with higher fidelity, that little bit of porn starts to basically infect the data set so that your output starts to, to kind of creep toward that. So it's like, it's, it's kind of gets in this weird territory of like how much porn is okay. <laughs> Which is like, that sounds so weird, right? But like... <laughs> And the other thing is they, so they had people on the other side is like, if you saw anything that was porn related, they wanted you to use, they didn't even do like upvote, downvote. They have emojis, which I think is a really cool idea where it goes from like heart eye emoji all the way down to puke face emoji. So you, you get this kind of, uh, get the Likert scale. Oh, you okay. mean, I, right. You're, what you're doing is saying, um, you know, very, very bad, very, very good. Yeah. Bad, good. And then, like, like that's and there is neither or something, or right? Different. And that doesn't exist. There's no, there's no middle neutral category. Okay. Yeah, which is smart. You don't want neutral because people pick neutral all the time. Yeah, and so it, it ends up becoming this this kind of cool game. And so they've talked about this before. That one of the things I really like about Midjourney personally is that like every Wednesday they do kind of like a town hall meeting for people to just drop into Discord, and the mods and the founder of the company will just drop in and be like, "Hey, here's what we're working on the week. Here are the problems we're facing," and then. Q&A with community who want to just questions or 
raise problems or whatever it is. It's kind of just a town hall. Um, and they'll just open the floor to people and say, here's what the company's working on. Here's the problems we're seeing. Uh, and if you have an idea or suggestions, please feel free to reach out or, you know, talk about it. And like, here's the type of people we need to help. Um, yeah. if you have that skill set. Cause like I said, in the beginning, this is super wild West territory. Like this is so new. And like, it seems like a toy right now. Like it's just, Hey, make, make images and have fun making cool art. But eventually this, all this stuff, you know, it starts out fun and, and silly and to some degree, but then eventually, you know, it becomes a functional tool that will affect people's lives, uh, or like be able to be wrapped into workflows. And so one example of this that I've seen recently, um, because I've posted some of my own images on Instagram, Instagram's networks have basically take, taken the fact that I've used the Miss Journey AI or just AI art um, hashtag. And so it's like, hey, you might like these other people who've posted images similarly. One guy I found, he is a architectural designer. And so he basically has been playing around with not only Mid Journey, but also Stable Diffusion. And basically trying to generate like mock sketches of architectural designs that he could use as like first passes on an architectural architectural idea that he can then pitch to customers or clients as a rough draft, or he can go back and then doctor up as he sees fit as like a basically a first pass on an idea. And I just think that's really cool because it's, yeah, it's a form of brainstorming. Yes. Rapid iteration is the way I would think of this as an engineer. What you're doing in some sense is you could imagine that because and we, I want to get to this question about um, where it's actually pulling all of its images from, but because it's pulling a bunch of images that have been created by people. So let's say you're an architect and you have a bunch of architects that created a bunch of pictures that have all gone out there on the internet that this thing pulls from. What you do as an architect, when you come to it, is you put in your prompt, which is effectively a question, not necessarily to the AI, which is the mechanism that amalgamates all of these images, but it's an open question to everyone who is given a picture to its database. So I'm not talking to an AI, I'm talking to you and a thousand other people. Yeah. And then the AI gives me the gist of what their response, which I then use to create something original, right? So I'm actually, it's a form of dialogue. It's a form of dialogue with your community. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that idea. Like some people have called it is like everyone, like all, all artists start out tracing things or to some degree, right? Like in some sense, what majority does is it allows you to trace the people like with having to go out and learn to move your hand in such a way to be able to mimic the skill of another human, right? Or the style of another human. You yeah. can try. You're <laughs> something that's really cool too. Okay. So this is, we're, we're, we're getting real close to touching on ethical problems. Yeah. Okay. So this thing is actually doing what you do as an artist. Okay. So if you're an artist and you sit down, right? If the AI is the amalgamation of recent pictures of art across who knows how much time and who knows what the breath is, uh, in order to provide for you a first pass image that you can use to generate art. What an artist does individually is that they go and ask, in some sense, their unconscious to provide for them an image that will behave as a first pass that they can use for a piece of artwork that they'll refine over time. But the reason that these are analogous is because the unconscious 
is an evolved thing, which means that it's in some sense, it's the stacked and compounded memories of the entire lineage of the human species designed to create for you a gist of everyone who has become, come before you's experience. And it provides for you an answer based on everything that's happened in the past. Everything. Since the first, I guess, first what? Since we first started evolving? Probably the first, like, cave first living or, thing. Right. Like, so, the first time we ever did an impression on a cave wall or something. <laughs> before that. The, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking the first single cell organism. Oh, to begin, gotcha. To begin evolved. Oh, so like, I don't know what. I don't know when the evolution began. Five billion years ago. Yeah. So five billion <laughs> years of opinions about how to live are amalgamated to produce for you an image as a response to the question that you ask your unconscious, your brain, that you then use as a first pass at some work of art. Okay. It's behaving the same way you behave. <laughs> it's just more splitment. It's the conscious, I have easier access in some sense, especially if I'm kind of, um, not quite a, uh, not a true artist in some sense, because yeah. a true artist has staggering, um, ability to communicate with that part of themselves. They're, they really are embedded still in this magical, mystical, mm -hmm. enchanted, it, um, it reminds me of, um, Stephen Pressfield's idea of channeling the muse. There's a book called War and Art. I'm sure you've heard of it, Joe. Um, and basically he talks about how basically if you're a writer and like everyone has like this, this, this like force inside themselves that's like tries to talk you out of doing the thing you want to be doing, right? It could be writing, it could be whatever, you name it, whatever creative act you're trying to do. And he's like, you have to tell that voice to like, not really shut up per se, but it's like, you just have to do the work. And you, if your job as a writer is to sit at your desk and write, then you need to be at your desk writing as much as possible so that when the muse does show up, then the muse can talk through you. And he, yeah. like, he uses a very, that's a Greek word, um, which is like, because of all the exploration we've done with Greek, I think it's hilarious um, that he uses muse, but it feels so accurate, especially with the way you're describing it too, because it's like, I think that's part of the reason why people kind of push back on the like the using of other people's uh styles or or um even just like motifs i guess like say you use like cyberpunk or just a common trope i guess people push back on these things because it feels like cheating almost like it's like it to me it's like it's not quite because the computer wouldn't just generate things on its own like it's like a combination of the person's own creativity but also leveraging that of the computer's data set to create something but it's not like entirely original you just don't know where it's pulling all the images from if you don't use someone else's style it's it gets gray interesting so, so you talk you, you were talking about the muse right and that, yeah that what you have to do in order to be able to produce these things is that you have to sit down and allow it's not like you're speaking. It's like the artists will talk about this or they'll, tr or they'll try to avoid talking like this because they don't want to sound pretentious, but the art moves through that. And it's because the you that you identify as, which 
psychoanalyst called the ego, but you hear it called something like executive function. Um, it's your conscious experience uh, contained within your concept of yourself, right? It's whatever you imagine yourself to be to mm. some degree. There's a whole bunch of you that you don't really have access to. Like I don't have any control over my digestive system. It just operates autonomously. So in some sense, it's not really mine. <laughs> it's certainly <laughs> not under my control. And it's not exactly me because it behaves of its own accord, right? But there are parts of your brain that also act autonomously. That's not too surprising in part because you have a whole nervous system that spreads down into your body into these parts that like your digestive system that operate on their own with the aid of your nervous system. But you can get into the kind of concentrated part of your brain and there are parts of your brain like the fight or flight mechanism that when you're in a position uh, that in some sense resonates with the purpose of that system, it activates and takes control of even you. It's like it moves up from the surface, swells above you, and then operates the entirety of the body and you're just absent. Yeah. <laughs> that thing is an unconscious element of yourself over which you have no control, at least not ostensibly not any control. And it, act, it acts just like an organ. The part of your brain that is producing these artistic creations is a psychological organ outside of your control. And it acts autonomously. So when somebody says, and what, okay, so here's another point. The you that you identify as inhibits that organ in the same way that I can sort of repress fear or push down nervousness or what have you. I can put down and inhibit this imaginative function. And so when you sit down at your computer and you're just expecting to come up with something genius and for the muse to speak to you, the reason that isn't happening is because the thinking you that you think that you are interrupts the ability of the muse to express itself. It was when you're active, it shuts up the other part of you, which is why for you to have dreams at night, the conscious you, the you you identify as, has to shut off almost entirely until you're sort of embedded back in the dream world. One of the best things you could do as a writer who wants to create something, to make something creative, is to sit down and shut up. Get until really bored it, for a while. Right, and get over the boredom bump. Because once you get over that, it'll relax you, your executive functionness, which will stop the inhib inhibition of the creative part of yourself, and it will freely express itself as it sees fit. Dude, this is so cool. I wasn't expecting to bring this in, but you, you reminded me, so I, I just started reading a new, it's, it's technically new, but it's more of like amalgamation of Tolkien's works. Um, for one of his 
stories in the Simmerillion. Um, they just came out with it. It's called The Fall of Gondolin, which is Tolkien's, uh, or not, Fall of Numenor, sorry, combining words. Um, the Fall of Numenor, which is basically Tolkien's version of the Atlantis myth. But in a lot of the writings, it's like excerpts of letters and different things about like Tolkien's writing process that you don't normally get with like these grand sweeping, you know, fantasy narratives, right? And in one of the letters he put to his friend is that he said that he felt that as he was crafting the world of Middle Earth, that it felt like he was just telling a story that was already there. Like he wasn't actively creating it. He was just uncovering it almost like a historian or an archaeologist. And like that fits perfectly what you were just saying. And it's right. like it what's hilarious though is it's like you have this guy who's people is like the quintessential fantasy writer at this point. Like he's the blueprint everybody since then has followed when creating an original fantasy world. And it's like what <laughs> like it's just so nuts to me to like these things don't go out of fashion to some degree. And I think modern people would kind of call that feeling flow, right? They, this is the the, the science of flow, or at least the, the way we've tried to secularize this thing, because in the past there would be something imbued upon by the gods or what have you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, they're, they're almost different. It's kind of strange. I mean, I get, it's like they're two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So firstly, let me make a comment about the Atlantis Numenor. Is that whatever yep. the fall of Numenor? Um, and everything about that is that he said that he was, he was, it wasn't, it was like the stories were already there and he was excavating. And to some degree, that's because the stories are already there. <laughs> that, like I said before, it's that the unconscious is this compounded experience and memory of your entire lineage stretching back to the first reproducing thing. Right? That fact... Like that compounded element, whatever that is, is already there. You have to get the hell out of the way. <laughs> oh, and the crazier thing is that part of Numenor, Tolkien had a reoccurring dream about like a giant wave that was like coming to engulf him, like a recurring nightmare, I should say. And in conversation with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Narnia, uh, told him, he, like, maybe you should try to write a story so that you can exercise the, this nightmare you're having. And that's part of the inspiration as well. Very cool. <laughs> so that's one piece. It sort of is already there. There is variation between individuals. Carl Jung, from whom I'm getting some significant portion of this, is had a collective unconscious and a personal unconscious. Hmm. A collective unconscious isn't collective because we all share in it, which is kind of the new age misinterpretation of this, that often people will think that the collective unconscious is like, we're all part of some like single consciousness man. Yeah, and like the mother whenever. kind of idea. That's a, that's a misunderstanding. It's that all of our brain, being the same species, we have some structure to our brain that's common across all of us. Whatever that commonality is, is the collective unconscious, right? The personal unconscious is the part 
of your unconscious that is influenced by your individual life. That's the part that's unique to you, right? Now, it isn't wholly unique insofar as any individual <laughs> have the same experience as you had. Like I went, I was, you might say I was on a basketball team and somebody else was on a basketball team, but that's not really the point. They're influenced not by the collective experience of the human species as it had evolved to this point, but the result of your individual experience having, after having been born, right? And, and yeah. so on, right? And there's some kind of bleeding between those. It's more like the collective unconscious is the trunk of the tree. And then the, the branches are your personal unconscious, right? It's, it's almost like, like a nature nurture kind of example. Yeah, it is. It is kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. And how so, that influences your sort of fantasy life. Yeah. It's similar. Right? To not, exactly. Right. And the fact that it's all unconscious, um, is the commonality between these two in some sense. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, it, like it, what I find interesting too, is like in some sense, using something like mid journey, you, you see like waves as like pop culture goes through different phases. Like when we saw cyberpunk get super popular, all of a sudden, like you'd be chilling in one of the channels. So it's like an open feed in discord where you're just chilling in a text chat and you just see all these people making images and you'll just see like waves of images go through where like, Oh, someone picked up on cyberpunk and you'll see like all these waves of images of cyberpunk related things, or because it's inherently an open platform, you'll see someone create something that they enjoy. And all of a sudden a whole bunch of variants from like, say a prompt you made starts getting picked up by a whole bunch of other people. Um, and I think in that way that the emergent property of some of this stuff that like this pseudo open network creating things together with other people and like it's almost like a jam session of like like <laughs> like with like music right where if you have just a whole bunch of musicians in a room together and you did, like one person starts playing and then like another instrument jumps in and another one it's almost like that but with like image making and it's like i think that part of it's cool um because we really haven't had that kind of stuff before like i'm sure there have been but like it's it's almost like art school right but like in a different kind of way like when you're in an art area where, or an area in the city where there's just a bunch of people who are artists working on their own specific thing, you kind of, it's like you're part of a community um, yeah. that's interesting. But I don't know if you want to pull this back into the ethical questions, because I think we, there's a lot of interesting ground to cover there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the ethical question was exactly that I was, that this particular thread had triggered. But I know we're, we're, we're so close to something. Let's, let's, hold on. Let me first, before we even go to ethics, let's, I want to finish this particular technical question. Go for it. Which is, what is the database that they're pulling all these images from? Yeah. Let me pull that up. I looked into this. So the last I looked, so the model, it's the same one that was used to train stable diffusion. I think it was also incorporated into mid journey two, but the image set has 2.3 billion images total. Oh. So that's what they used to train the V4 algorithm. Specific. Are these totally indiscriminate images? So there must be some portion of this is pornography. Yes. Like, I think they said like around 10% of it was. 
okay, some portion of this is um, violent, I would assume. So it says the three massive data sets collected by Leon, A-L-A-I-O-N, a nonprofit whose compute time was largely funded by Stable Diffusion. I'm using a web uh, article from waxy.org right now. Um, kind of just skimming. But they wanted to show the full data set, but it challenged a whole 600 million record data sets. It says it includes 12 million image to text pillars with pre pre predicted aesthetic stores. Uh, there's nearly half of the images, 40% of are sourced only from 100 domains with largest image number of images coming from Pinterest. So there's one major. Sure. Uh, it says they sourced uh, WordPress hosted blogs. Um, Source 819,000 images. Other photo and art blogs included Smug Smug, Blogspot, Flickr, DeviantArt. I told you about that one. Wikimedia, yeah. Tumblr. Um, shopping sites yeah. were well represented, the largest being Fine Art America, which had 698K oh, okay. images, or 5.8% of the uh, image set. Uh, 244 images came from Shopify. 189K came from Wix and Squarespace, which are website hosting platforms. <laughs> so basically, they kind of seemed to scour the internet yeah. and just kind of find images, but then they had a rating system that they used as like a baseline to get high quality images. Let's see. They, they, and they had some underlying model of like aesthetic scoring with text Im, image text pairs to kind of sift through the image set. Huh. Super wild. And a lot of brute forcing. <laughs> so this is a weird thing because the part of the reason I was curious is because I wondered to what degree the image database was representative of human, the it's all of our, of human fantasies. So you would imagine that, um, some, I mean, something like 90% of the internet is pornography. That says something about what human beings are interested in. Okay. Right. So, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a representative thing. Um, because the internet doesn't give you food to eat and it can't produce smells. So it's a medium that defines to some degree what you can't, what you would put on it. Insofar as men are sexual and visual, visual creatures, then in some sense, sex is predisposed to be put on the internet mm. because the internet is almost entirely visual medium. Now it's also, you can get sound and because right. there's whatever, but, but you're not getting scent, you're not getting taste, you're not getting anything tactile. So the internet is not a representative a uh, sample of human fantasy, desire, what have you, in part because it's skewed by the medium. So I'm asking the same question of the AI, to what degree does the, has the AI pulled a non-representative sample of images from which it'll derive all of its images? And so you have these, this further and further um, divergence from the kind of core mentality of humanity, right? Again, we're 
to use the tree metaphor, we're the, uh, we're the trunk of the tree. The internet is a single limb. The image database from which the AI pulls is a single branch on that limb. And they're all sort of coming off of each other, splitting from each other and moving further away from the original central trunk. That's really interesting. So in this article, they actually said something about the non-safer work content to, <laughs> to, to make it safe here. It says, supposedly, I don't know how true this is, only 222 got a one is completely unsafe, uh, indicating 100% um, confidence that it was unsafe. About 0.002% of total images are definitely porn. But nudity seems to be unusual outside of the confidence level even images with a 0 0.9999 pun safe score rarely had nudity in them so i don't know if that's true because i've seen porn appear in uh um or nudity appear in mid journey even with that so i'm not sure how much to and believe. stable diffusion i know stable diffusion is making explicit pornography they will they will let you do it because right. I mean, Midjourney's taken a pretty hard stance on not allowing, like, even blood to some degree. They won't, like, they have blood filters right. and things like that, or gore. I think they won't let you do it. Right. But if Stable Diffusion is pulling from the same database, yes. You would imagine that there's at least enough images in that database to produce the variety of whatever that happens to be. Yeah. Um, pornography created on stable diffusion so there has to be enough in if that's happening if there's some significant amount of pornography coming from stable diffusion then there has to be enough images to be able to do that yeah. in that database and if that's the same database that midjourney is using then hypothetically midjourney could do it if they didn't have some kind of measure whatever measures they happen to have to in order to prevent yeah. that Okay, so that's they said one of the team members who created this data set said roughly two per two point nine percent of the English language images were quote unsafe, but browsing the data set, it's unclear how they their predictors defined that. So okay. again, it all comes down to def definition, right? Like the problem is, is like who, like we, I would actually be curious if there's like a research paper on this or something yeah. like that to see how they define terms because that like a lot of this. This is why I've actually co come to appreciate um, words way more in, in all of this and like how we define words because little do we know how much word, certain words can mean certain things, right? Like when you put love or like <laughs> what, what kind of image does the word love put in, right? Or come up with, you try to make a computer generate that. And does it capture the quote unquote essence of what love is? Yeah. In a two-dimensional image. <laughs> Well, it right. It tells you something very specific. I mean, this is an unsurprising um, result, but it does tell you something about uh, the way in which people think about love. So I, one of the prompts that I put in for version four was literally just love incarnate. Mm. Right. So, so what does it look like? What is, what does love look like? And it got some pretty <laughs> fascinating pictures, but they're all young women. Yep. Okay. Why? Because... <laughs> Because when one is in love, apparently from some significant portion of the data, people who provided art for this database, 
you rep- are in love with young women. <laughs> and so it's, it's, no one should be shocked by that point, no. but it, it's, it's nice to make that explicit so we can point out the fact that what Midjourney is doing is showing you how people think. <laughs> there is, I gotta see if I can find it, but some people have done experiments on this. Um, and basically with the new V4, they kind of put gibberish prompts in where it's just a random string of characters to right. see like, what are like the inherent biases of the program? Like, what is it going to default to you in generating a, a string of gibberish? And he found that most of them, if you don't tell like, if you say no face, no girl, but in, if you left to its own devices, the program will gear itself to, to making young women as an image more often than anything else. And, and it's kind of weird, like, cause we don't really know why they do that, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting idea. It's like, how, how are we getting there? <laughs> yeah. Like, you can imagine the reason that that's happening is because of all of the art that's in the database, the most significant topic is pictures of women. Yeah, you're probably right about that one. It's probably got a really high, like, prevalence score, or however you call it. Staggering number of those pictures are just of women. Which tells you something about just how powerful the sex drive of artists are. <laughs> Again, back to the muse, right? Like, how many people have, like, been poets or writers and say that, you know, the muse is the... Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I can tell you something about the development of the idea of the muse across, shit, 10,000 years. So everything in the human system had to branch off of something else. That's bootstrapping. You use something that you had to make something that you, that you can, you have now, right? What do you, what do you knew to make sense of what you're coming to? Okay. Or know to make sense of what you um, this means that before culture existed, before human beings had any culture whatsoever, the first steps in developing, developing culture had to use pre-cultural things, right? That which was available to it before culture came to exist. Okay, so one of those things is the body. So you can use very clear... You can use quite literally just features of your own body in order to try to express some idea. Um, but you can also use experiences in the body, clear instincts, um, in order to get at this, in order to kind of push to start creating a culture. So in ancient Egypt, um, the god Atum, A-T-U-M, was the creator god kind of the first God who made the universe, right? So the Egyptians are trying to figure out how to express the idea of the creation of everything. Okay. So what is a creative act, right? What is something creative that you can use that existed before the kind of creativity that's associated with culture? The obvious thing is the sexually create, the right. sexual act. It, it is a creative act, right? That 
a man and woman come together. They have sex. That sex produces a child. It creates a child, right? And so a tomb would being whole in some sense, it is everything all at once before anything is created in some sense, the thing that was before the universe was, had to symbolically show you the oneness. And they rely on the body for this. So a tomb is both male and female, right? So there's no, it's both male and female. Everything is accounted for. And he masturbates the universe into existence. So he has a sexual creative act that per, with himself, right, with male and female, all part of one thing coming together already, or they are already together and are creating, giving birth to the universe. Yeah. Right. So you see how the body is mixed up in the metaphor because that's what they had to rely on, how sex is mixed up in the metaphor because that's what they had to rely on. And then you slowly bootstrap off of this, right? So the mythology about creativity begins to become more abstract and actually it migrates up the body. Because at a certain point, uh, Athena, who Camille Paglia identifies as the, something like the god of ingenuity, right? That kind of, the, the kind of uh, flowing, moving, kicking and jiving kind of idea making, right? That she she's, wears armor and has a shield and all of this, in part because she's useful on the battlefield. She's associated with the battlefield and war. Um, but she's also feminine and that she's, females are often representative of creativity later on because it isn't, if the women give birth, women are creative. Oh, I see. And, right? And then you'll even get that femininity is creative and that still lingers around. And then you'll see that men who are artists are often viewed as sort of feminine <laughs> that, that artists are these kind of feminine types in some sense hmm. um not necessarily but you can see that there there's a there, it has an opposite but um athena so ingenuity is split from the head of zeus that zeus has a headache after i think he eats metis or something and then him and Metis and so give birth through his head to ingenuity. So the new creative act is out of the head, right? Which is how we actually kind of think of it now. Yeah. And you can go, the word fecundity has two meanings. The old meaning meant to be able to give birth to lots of children, like fertile, right? Oh, weird. You had lots and lots of children. The old, the more new definition of this is to be able to give birth to many ideas. Mm -hmm. So the idea of creativity in the artistic or intellectual sense is a branch on the limb of sexuality. So if that's the case, <laughs> then the reason that there's a muse is because the old system remains entangled the, this creative system remained locked into sexual reproduction. So you have wild <laughs> the representation of the sexual ideal being constantly reemerging, expressed 
through the limb and back out the branch of ingenuity. <laughs> like time and time again. <laughs> That's the muse. The muse is the ideal you fall in love with that pulls you forward in your creative act. <laughs> it's, it's that fantastical representation yeah. of creativity as such. It's you're being pulled by the ideal of whatever that thing that's captured your, your. Every, every artist falls in love with their ideal. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yes. That's and that ideal entices them into creativity, right? It seduces them forward. Yeah. <laughs> that is and you can see the go pathological too. There's this, there's this, um, pretty wild uh, paper that I read, this was a scientific article, but it was super, it was wildly, it was creative in itself and pretty remarkable. This guy used chaos theory to make sense of wow. um, what artists were doing. So what's a narcissist? A narcissist is someone whose ideal is themselves. They can actually, they can, they conflate the ideal with their ego. So they think that their self-concept is the same thing as the ideal that ought to be outside of them pulling them forward, right? So they don't recognize that they're constantly falling short of their ideal. So they never actually get pulled forward by it. They think they're always already there, right? They're already the idealized version of themselves, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're an artist and you're a narcissist, then you are in love with your ideal who is yourself, okay? So you've created this dangerous feedback loop. So in this article, this guy noticed that a bunch of artists who were narcissistic, um, who noted what they did when they got sick. And what ended up happening when they would get sick is that all of their art would immediately become sick, but then they would also become a piece of the art. like. Some of them would like hang themselves. Like it was so fucking self-aggrandizing. Like put themselves on a hospital bed and then suspend the hospital bed over like this art museum or something to like, oh, look at uh, how terrible everything is. Woe is me. <laughs> right, right, right. In the most obnoxious way ever. Right. Because a normal person who is sick idealizes a not sick version of themselves that's outside of themselves to strive towards and to get better. The narcissist immediately has their ideal contaminated by their own sickness. And then they, they aim at their ideal unconsciously, which is now sick because it is them. And then they just spiral down the drain and get worse and worse and worse because in some sense, they're now aiming at their own sickness they're aiming at getting worse and the whole thing is a, is a positive it's feedback a, it's loop. It's a black mirror. <laughs> right. They get caught in this insane thing, this loop. It's very weird. God, humans are strange. <laughs> Wild. That's so strange. I mean, it's like some of the stuff I've seen, like even on mid-journey with like people who've done horror things or like, blatant political cartoons where they'll try to put like presidential figures or political figures and then try to like put children or guns or just in my mind grotesque like why are we trying to create grotesque things you know basically pseudo propaganda 
which I mean, this is no different than any other time in in yeah. history. We've been doing this. People do this all the time. But in my in my mind, I just don't go there. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because badness is built the the limb that it's on is fear and disgust. They're actually two different limbs of this tree. And so Hitler used a bunch of language uh, to describe, he used a bunch of disgust language to describe Jewish people before he went off and did his terrible things. Right? So he, the, it's like, that's the avenue he was caught down, right? If the artist moves down the, the sexual limb, the, the evil person can move down the disgust limb or they can move down a, a fear limb. Yeah. It depends, right? So, but you can see that it's, it's like, you just have a simple, like five or whatever number of branches or limbs. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have a whole bunch of things that can branch off the limbs. And then you have a canopy of things that come off of that. It's like a tree, literally. It's, it's right. <laughs> like, it's weird that the brain, like these, the quote unquote neural network looks a lot like a tree. <laughs> Cause the brain I, almost I think looks like a tree too. <laughs> I, I think that it, it is. <laughs> right. And it, obviously I'm being metaphorical, but it's like the brain is a tree. <laughs> In an earlier version of the, ironically, the earlier version of the mid journey website, it doesn't have it anymore, but there used to be like a web, like a map of every user and they would basically plot every user based on their most common words they use in their prompt. So you basically had like this giant like constellation of users with their styles spread around. And you could kind of like pick and see like, oh, if you hover over this, it's like this person likes to sit in this style. And it's like, as you move around the, the hotspot globe, you can see how the styles merge and change based on like the user base basically, which I thought was really interesting to see that. Um, the other thing that I would, I would mention, um, I'm trying to think of the, there was another theory. Oh, one of the theories we brought up initially with like the seeding in aspect of this down the road, um, what they want to do is not only create like a general style, like they're working on right now to make it coherent and easy to use and make beautiful things. Right. But what they want to do is basically allow the user themselves to create personal styles down the road. And huh. basically allow you, say you have a data set of your own images, like of a, a say you really like, for instance, just using you, Joe, as mythological figures and heroes and stuff like that. And you have a really well-defined data set of mythological figures. That you have defined the style. What you could then do in theory, whether they want to get to this, is then like, auto-filter your prompts through your personalized mythological style to create the Joe Joukowsky mythological image sets. Like as a baseline. Like you, like it on, and only you would have access to that because that's what you've made. You know what I mean? Like, like. Would it act as a seed? Basically, effectively. Okay, cool. So like instead of you trying to struggle through and get like this specific, very specific style that doesn't exist because it doesn't. Right. <laughs> then eventually you could effectively train the, mo train a, a subsection of the model to your specific thing yeah that's pretty unique yeah so that's like again like the, a lot of this is wild west and so it's going there baby question mark <laughs> i can't like i can totally see how that would happen right 
Because if it's hmm. if it can feed back things you upvote and things you like, it could easily start, you know, once you give specificity to being like, okay, like you only use this subsection of the liked images I have. Um and then like the other pe people I've I've seen use this. Um there's a YouTube another YouTube channel called Corridor. They they're a VFX studio that is basically on YouTube, but they've done some experiments with uh Mid Journey and, and a few others to to kind of showcase some of what you can do with storytelling. And their kind of thing is like, it's okay to borrow and like art has always been borrowing from everything, right? Like, like you kind of laid out in the beginning, it's like bottom up, everything, you know, just differentiate the stuff over time as you put layers on top of it. But it's like, if you're using someone's artwork or like a living artist, for example, that you might be borrowing their work, either give credit to that person. Don't just say it's yours. If you've used an artist's name, uh, but also try to don't just take that generated thing and just put it out there and say, well, look what I did. Try to make it your own, at least do something, you know, download the image, put it in something else, edit it in some way, or do something else with it that puts only your spin on it. Um, yeah. You sort of need to, um, revivify it with human touch. Yes. Right. You kind of need like, to put your hand on it. To make you, because you could imagine that this thing could easily narrow into something repetitive and boring. Yeah. That it just, per, it's like, it just continues to perfect and perfect and perfect. And then it can't get out of its, this thing that it, this narrow, narrow, narrow hallway that's created. And then in some sense, it's where we are as a culture, which <laughs> is that it actually produce anything new. It's like narrowing it's the hallway, good. right? <laughs> yeah. Instead of having Give me a, one moment. I want to run to the bathroom real quick before we continue. Nope. No problem. Okay. Go. Where were we? <laughs> I don't know, but I had a thought. So we were talking about the brain 
as a tree. Yeah. Right. So one that might be the world tree that shows up in like Norse mythology, but you also have Jacob's ladder and a whole bunch of other versions of this, which is that the idea there is very weird. <laughs> it's very, there's a lot of weird stuff and shamans will talk about ascending or descending this tree when they go through their shamanic experiences. And they'll talk about it like a tree. So it could be what they're doing is going up and down in some sense, the brainstem. It's like your conscious self is moving down like your brain structures. That's funky. Like I kind of suspect that what consciousness is, is like the coordinate of a concentration of energy in the universe. And that it's an actual physical location, but what things look like at that location is dependent on something like the nervous system or the neurology that it's embedded in. Right. And then maybe the only thing that produces that amount of concentration of energy at a single point or organized in the right proper way is something like a nervous system. Yeah, I was going to say that it's like we almost, it's like what we're working with subconsciously. Like, of course, we're going to create a system that looks like our nervous system because that's what we work out of. Yeah. Uh, but, unconsciously, of course. Right. So, okay. So that touches on the other thought that I had, which is that, okay, so that's one thing. I'm not saying that's the case, you know, right. I'm just saying that, you know, it's weird and I'm going to put that aside and just say that was speculative and I'll figure that out later, I guess. <laughs> but. The other problem that could be going on is that if our unconscious systems have a structure and that structure has certain symbols, um, like uh, from which you build off of, and then you use those right to build off of, and then make sense of things in the world, me trying to make sense of the brain as a tree might not be because the brain metaphorically is a tree, but because that's just one of the structures I have available to me to make sense of any given thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, in some sense, I'm falling prey to the structure of the collective unconscious in my attempt to make sense of something novel. Crazy. And so like, um, Eric Weinstein, a mathematician, uh, created a, a theory of the universe or theory of everything that's he called, um, I think it's geometric unity is what he called it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but he talked about it. Now this is mathematics that is, I will never be able to touch. So who knows, but the metaphor that he uses for it is MC Escher's, um, hands that draw themselves. That's mm -hmm. a hand is a drawing of a hand that is a that is drawing a drawing of a hand that is drawing that hand. So it's, it's an Ouroboros. It's a nested It's loop. the snake that bites its own tail and reproduces itself, but it's hands. And in the same way that MC Escher produced those hands drawing themselves, relying on an Ouroboric structure, symbolic structure in his unconscious, <laughs> Eric Weinstein may have created an entire mathematical justification for the nature of the universe that has been contorted by his unconscious. Mm. You see what I'm saying? That he may not 
that it might even be internally coherent, but it is so subject to the structures of our brains that in some sense, it can't break out of it. Right. We can't see the walls because we're inside the walls. Like we can't see out of it. We're, we're, it's a hole of mirrors. You're just, it's like your brain is a vase and you can, you know, dump a bunch of stuff into it, but it's always going to take the same shape. Right. So like that might be happening too. And Mm -hmm. that suggests, if that's the case, there's a bunch of ifs in here, but if that's the case, then you could imagine that we, there's a certain point at which we can't transcend human knowledge until we have a full understanding of the structure of human knowledge so that we can account for it in our models of everything. Because we're contorting what we see. So you have to take that into account. Yeah. It's actually interesting because the, the mid-journey people were just trying to say that they were going to try and prune some of the data sets to make it less tropey. So I think that's mm. kind of what you're talking about, right? Like the common tropes and certain things to get more image variety, which right. I think could combat some of the, you know, the bias of all the young, attractive women in the model we see. Or like if you're trying to not get portraits of people when you're like distinctly put in a, a prompt that doesn't have people, like you don't want to see people, but it still gives you a face to yeah. some degree. Um they said they pulled one of the images that was weird is like a, a furniture um, gallery where they had like a painting on a wall and then like a sofa or something next to it. And the, the point was to like see what the photo looked like up on the wall in like a living room setting. But basically, if you in certain prompts, you would start getting this couch that would randomly appear for no reason. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, like it would be like in a street, in the middle of a street, a couch would show up for no reason. And it's like, it's like somehow the data set was just, was like pulling in this random artifact and putting it in strange situations that didn't make sense. And it's like, it's like a phantom couch. Right, exactly. Like the ghost, this haunted spiritual spirit couch, just sneaking its way into every given image. Yeah. Um, and I think we've already been doing this for almost an hour and a half. So I think here I, I, I want to posit my like sci-fi theory about where this stuff could go, not just in, in images, but like, what happens when we can do generative art or generative ideas in other contexts, not just artistic context, but like actually applying this in a broader context? Do you want to hear my crazy theory? I, yes, I, I do. I want to hear it. I think that I want to hear it, maybe discuss it a bit. Okay. And then I think next week we should do, um, we should do part two of this and just talk the ethics. Because sure. we never got there. Yeah, we really didn't get there this time at all. Oh, it's almost like this was more technical in some sense. Yeah. And we could do the ethical part. Yeah. And we could talk about the moderation stuff that I also prefaced a little bit too, because I think the moderation aspect ties into the ethical questions about this, because it, at the end of the day, this deals with people and like what people are creating also brushes on the ethical <laughs> and, and it leads to moderation things that I think in social media, it doesn't really get brought up um, at, at all. And what, one of the things they said, I'll just preface it here that I thought was interesting because I want to put it out there, but it's basically negative things are spread at twice. This is not scientifically proven, but like basically negative information spreads at twice the rate as positive information, right? And so if you just leave algorithms that are like, or or a bucket where feedback can be placed, 
people will tend to dogpile on and like as soon as they see one negative things one like as soon as someone sees one negative thing it like opens the floodgates for everyone else to say all the negative things that they're frustrated with right and so when you do that kind of stuff you basically have this problem where then the moderators or people who are in charge of policing these things or helping solve problems are only inundated with the worst five like the vocal minority of the five like the worst five percent of your user population right and so what does that do to the psychological health of the people trying to actually deal with real problems like you just mm. end up living in a world of everything just sucks <laughs> and so you end up having this kind of like oroboric like idea where all you're ever even though you might be creating the best product in the world that helps a whole bunch of people and do creative things but your job is to see the worst five percent all the time like that's not help so the the thing they posited was why don't we put in some sort of weighting mechanism when it comes to feedback so that you level out like the feeds so that you see a roughly 50% 50% positive rather than just letting all the negative outweigh the positive right if you leave it up Twitter killer in this right and that's why I wanted to just throw that out there as like a weird spark note because I thought that was a really cool idea um that I've never heard anyone throw out there uh before because why like why don't we do that right like instead of just letting the the whims of the most viewed or the most like post which usually doesn't mean it's the best or highest quality thing bubble up to the surface like if you just leave it up to pure um meritocracy right yeah or i heard a interesting comment from jonathan paggio who's a christian eastern orthodox icon carver a bit of a philosopher or phenomenologist i think uh himself yeah he's an interesting dude and he was talking about AI and he said that uh, if AI give people what they need, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if AI start giving people what they want, that's going to get dark real quick. Because human mm. beings have some tendencies, like you're suggesting here, which is towards negativity. And it just gives us a bunch of negativity then we end up in a pretty dark place pretty fast. And I think that it becomes very quickly the responsibility of, now this is dangerous territory and it immediately broaches on the ethics that we'll talk about next week, that it's the responsibility of these AI generators to Try for the AI to give us what we need and not what we want. Yeah. But that requires a conception of what is, in some sense, good. And that's ethics. And a very, very hard question to <laughs> contend with. Yeah. Uh, in a weird sort of way, in some of my images, I've tried to, like, put in inadvertently, like, Imagine better possible futures. Like, what does a futuristic power station look like? Like, futuristic cities of like combining open green spaces, like vertical greenhouses, things like that. To to like try to imagine the po the the possible futures we might have. Like, what happens if everything goes right? Like, like instead of like what is ever like, what does the world look like if everything goes to hell? Which is uh, we touched on the dystopian. Uh, world in a few podcasts ago with the cyberpunk discussion number two and I, I 
I can't help but be an eternal optimist. It's just kind of baked into my preset. <laughs> yeah. and, and so like in my own way, I'm like, okay, let's try to like seed the seed the waters with like my own little <laughs> like positivity world of, of what happens if we get it right, or like what does a world look like if we get one percent of it right? Um and this kind of goes into my like sci-fi question about like, okay, what does the pragmatic tool tool-based version of this generative um stuff look like so you can imagine that as these tools evolve and get better they start differentiating and start specializing into different domains um if you are an engineer or are familiar with engine engineering programs there's what are called cad models which are computer-aided drafting so basically you can make 3d objects um in a computer program and then you can basically um give yourself a drawing or a blueprint of what the part might look like in real life before you ever start making a production model of it. Um, and so my, my idea with this would be like, okay, say you have a part that already exists and it is going to serve more or less the same function. What you could do is take version of this kind of program and say, generate me this new part, but like using this as a baseline, but change dimensions or change function in some ways. And then you could have it throw that schematic into this computer-aided drafting program, have some, you know, junior engineer or someone who knows how to refine it, making sure there's no major errors. And then you then can send that straight to like a 3D printer to then print a rapid prototype in real life. And with how much, extra, like instead of having a full-time engineer have to go back through the whole design process all over again, you have like this, this computer system that takes all that computer time and or that engineering time and shrinks it down to like, you still need to know a whole bunch about all this working, but in theory, you could then like supercharge your design process or like going back to the architectural design idea, right? Like you could 3d, 3d model a home design or, or a building design well before you ever put a single thing in the ground to build a foundation, you could have everything right there. And leveraging this kind of model that's hyper real or hyper like um, high fidelity, you could get to this super um, precise rapid iteration so that clients could see the end product before they ever even like know what they're like. They could know exactly what they're going to get before they even start doing anything. And you could save on cost because you know exactly how much materials need and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just think that would be really, really cool. Or like the other side of this going into the creative realm is within VFX, where you can start taking 3D models. They actually did a version of this with um, the creators of Dolly. They have a 3D model generator that's similar to this, where you type in text and it makes a three-dimensional model that you can drop into VFX programs. And it gives you the skin, like the, the texture map. And like you can say, make, say like a gold statue. And say you're a budding filmmaker and you don't have the massive budget to make high fidelity, you know, 3D models, but you have a program like this and you can make that in minutes rather than having to hire a real 3D artist. Or maybe you still do have a real 3D artist, but you don't need a whole team of them to make high fidelity models. So it, to me, it's like this democratization of technology that I think is really, really cool and allows for people who are already well-informed or have a strong vision that can leverage it and make things that once would take hundreds of people might only take dozens of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the kind of 
that is the kind of AI that I'm hopeful for. Yeah. Though I'm, I wouldn't even say I'm cautiously optimistic. I just hope that that, that becomes the kind of AI that we get. Yes. Because it's a helpful servant, not a dangerous master. master. Yeah. Right. It needs to be subordinate to us. It has to be. Otherwise, we're screwed. I will, I will say this forever and ever, but the people who thought of computation or like the founding fathers of computation always thought that computers were meant to be the partner in humans, meaning computers are really good at doing things really fast. They're, doing, they're good at grunt work. And the, the humans are the things that are at creativity and cinching data and information and the, the blocks together, right? Like if you imagine life is kind of like a giant Lego set, like that's what I've always kind of viewed technology as. Technology is helps us build Legos faster. And it's up to each of us as humans to put the Legos together in a creative and interesting way that is engaging and hopefully not detrimental to other people, right? I'm, I'm saying that in very broad terms for a reason, but I'm hoping the metaphor sticks. <laughs> very cool. So like that, that's kind of like my sci-fi idea on this stuff because I think, I just think it's, we're, we're kind of at this edge of like, oh my God, what happens in five years from now? <laughs> Scary. <laughs> so with that, everyone, kind of a crash course in generative art, everything's going on and we still have the ethical piece to cover in the next one, but uh, hopefully you'll learn something and there's a lot to cover. <laughs>